Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabulletin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. We're back with Disabulletin following a brief research sabbatical concerning upcoming installments for our program. With the Supreme Court's docket now empty, until the first Monday of October, we reviewed two significant cases which came before the court in this last year. In these cases, the disability community asked the court critical questions regarding nursing home civil rights and special education civil rights, respectively. The first case came out of our very own state of Indiana this last November. It concerned the late Georgie Tulevsky, a then-resident at the Valparaiso Care and Rehabilitation Facility. Georgie Tulevsky's family sued the facility's operators, the Marion County Health and Hospital Corporation, or HHC, under Section 1983 of the U.S. Code, as well as the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, or FINRA, of 1987. In the Supreme Court arguments held on November 8th of last year, the Tulevsky family argued they had the grounds to sue, as their late relative was allegedly the victim of civil rights violations, which included over-medication and involuntary transfer to a different nursing home located hours away from the Tulevsky's family home. The question in this case was whether or not those benefiting under programs receiving federal Medicaid funds, such as government-run nursing homes, could sue such programs if their civil rights were violated. On the opposite side, Marion HHC contested the case on the grounds that the statute in the U.S. Code, known as Section 1983, did not confer such a right to sue when first enacted in the 19th century, its original purpose being to protect former slaves from further discrimination by the southern states. Marion HHC also argued that even if a section of a law secures rights, HHC could defeat the lawsuit by arguing Congress, quote, did not intend that Section 1983 lawsuits be available under such rights, end quote. Although the Rights Statute of the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act mentions nothing about Congress intending to allow for civil rights lawsuits, it does create an administrative scheme, quote, for inspections of nursing home facilities and authorizes governments to sanction and correct non-compliant facilities, end quote. Therefore, there was no incompatibility present between the administrative scheme of FINRA and Section 1983 lawsuits. On June 8th of this year, the Supreme Court ruled 7-2 that, quote, the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, or FINRA, provisions at issue unambiguously create Section 1983 enforceable rights. And this court discerns no incompatibility between private enforcement under Section 1983 and the remedial scheme that Congress devised under FINRA, end quote. In other words, the court ruled that those receiving the benefits of Medicaid programs do in fact have the right, or in legalese, a right of action, to seek compensation through the courts. In the majority opinion, Justice Kachanji Brown Jackson wrote, quote, At oral argument, HHC's counsel remarked that the right question is, what rights are secured by law within the meaning of Section 1983? Section 1983 itself provides the answer. By its terms, Section 1983 is available to enforce every right that Congress validly and unambiguously creates. We will not now impose a categorical font of power condition that the Reconstruction Congress did not when it passed Section 1983." Justice Jackson said that the manner in which Section 1983 is applied does allow for a private right for nursing home residents to sue if their rights under the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act are violated as Marion HHC's medical team violated both provisions by transferring Tulevsky and giving him psychotropic medication against his will. Tulevsky's rights were therefore violated, thus creating a cause of action to sue. Justice Amy Comey Barrett concurred with Jackson in the majority in that the FINRA satisfied a test set in Gonzaga v. Doe 2002, wherein Congress must have had the intention to, quote, 
create rights for the intended beneficiaries, end quote. Justice Barrett also said the FINRA satisfied the test because the law contained a rights statute for nursing home residents. However, Justice Comey Barrett said normally such Section 1983 actions are the exception and not the rule for violations of spending clause statutes. This is because, quote, the typical remedy for state noncompliance with federally imposed conditions is not a private cause of action for the noncompliance, but rather action by the federal government to terminate funds to the state, end quote. So essentially, Justice Amy Comey Barrett was saying that lawsuits typically cannot be filed under Section 1983. Instead, the federal government will resort to terminating public funds to the state, which had allegedly violated the individual's civil rights. On the dissenting side, Justice Clarence Thomas contended that throughout American history, such spending clause statutes by the Congress were primarily viewed as a contract rather than as laws between the state and federal government. Thomas also argued such regulations constitute what is known as commandeering of the states, or when the federal government oversteps its boundaries by pressuring states to pass or not pass laws. Justice Alito joined Justice Thomas in the dissent by arguing that by specifying limited remedies for federal authorities and tasking states with determining the consequences for violations of obligations prior to receiving federal funding, there is a clear division of authority that ensures states retain their historical control over nursing home regulation. Alito wrote, quote, Allowing Section 1983 lawsuits will upset this balance by allowing any plaintiff to demand damages, regardless of the remedial scheme that states establish pursuant to their explicit authority under the Act. End quote. Following the decision in the Tulevsky camp, Shira Waxlag, Senior Director of Legal Advocacy and General Counsel for Advocacy Organization The Ark of Indiana, said to WFYI Indianapolis, quote, this really has broad implications in a whole variety of areas for individuals with disabilities and the people that we serve, end quote. Meanwhile, on the Marion HHC side, a statement from the organization to WFYI read, quote, With the court's definitive answer today that Medicaid-supported nursing home residents have both administrative and federal court remedies for alleged violations, Marion HHC will continue to work to manage those operations safely and effectively and analyze the impact of this court's decision on those public resources, end quote. Our second case, as we move forward in time, is Perez v. Sturgis Public School District, which also concerned civil rights, albeit in the field of special education. The issue at hand, could a deaf student, that being Miguel Luna Perez of Sturgis, Michigan, sue for monetary damages under the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, if the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, did not allow him to do so, and was he required to exhaust all court appeals. The ADA bars programs which receive federal funding, such as public school districts, from practicing discrimination against individuals with disabilities, while the IDEA Act entitles individuals with disabilities to a FAPE, or free appropriate public education. Miguel Luna Perez of Sturgis, Michigan, was denied access to a professional sign language interpreter through 12 years of schooling, and was provided instead with an ineffective one. In that time, Perez's parents were falsely told their son was on his way to graduation, only to receive a certificate of completion in lieu of a diploma upon completing his senior year of high school. After receiving this news, the Perez family filed a lawsuit against both the Michigan Department of Education and the Sturgis School Board on the grounds that both violated the IDEA and ADA Acts. However, the Sturgis School District offered a settlement to pay for Perez to attend the Michigan School for the Deaf and compensate the family's legal fees, which would satisfy Perez's lawsuit under the IDEA Act should the family accept, which they did. 
But then the family filed a lawsuit for monetary damages separately under the ADA, which entitles victims of disability discrimination to pursue legal remedies separately, unlike the IDEA Act, which does not permit such lawsuits. The question, once again, was whether by accepting the district's settlement, did the Perez family also forfeit their right to further litigation for monetary damages under the ADA instead of going through the lengthy process of appeals for both claims, a process known in legalese as exhaustion, which is mandated by the IDEA Act, a claim which was echoed by Sturgis District Lawyer Shea Deveretsky. In the Supreme Court arguments held on January 18th of this year, Perez's lawyer, Ramon Martinez, argued that although Perez had settled his claims under the IDEA Act, he could still pursue his claim for monetary damages separately under the ADA. On the other side, Shea Deveretsky cited Section 1415 of the IDEA Act, which contained two features. The first clause was focused on remedies and set forth this following rule, quote, Nothing in IDEA shall be construed to restrict, end quote, the ability to seek remedies under, quote, other federal laws protecting the rights of children with disabilities, end quote. This second clause carves out an exception. Before filing a civil action under other federal laws, quote, seeking relief that is also available under IDEA, the procedures under 1415 shall be exhausted, end quote. In a 9-0 unanimous decision authored by Justice Neil Gorsuch, released on March 21st this year, the Supreme Court ruled that although Perez could not sue for damages under the IDEA Act, he could pursue damages under other federal laws, such as the ADA. In the opinion affirming the decision, Justice Gorsuch referred to a prior case in 1986. In this case, quote, Fry v. Napoleon Public Schools, 1986, the court held that Section 1415 of the IDEA Act's exhaustion requirements do not apply unless the plaintiff seeks relief for the denial of a free and appropriate public education, as that is the only relief IDEA's administrative processes can supply. This case presents an analogous but different question, whether a suit admittedly premised on the past denial of a free and appropriate public education may nonetheless proceed without exhausting IDEA's administrative processes if the remedy a plaintiff seeks is not one IDEA provides. In both cases, the question is whether a plaintiff must exhaust administrative processes under IDEA that cannot supply what he seeks. And here, as in Fry, we answer in the negative, end quote. Therefore, Justice Gorsuch reaffirmed the court's prior rulings wherein a plaintiff does not have to go through the lengthy process of appeals mandated by the IDEA Act unless they are seeking a free, appropriate public education. According to the National Law Review, quote, such a decision could spell trouble for school districts, as it could result in an increase in cases by families seeking monetary damages in contrast to appropriate educational needs for their children, end quote. However, according to Education Weekly, quote, it will make it easier for other students with disabilities and their families to bypass often slow-moving administrative proceedings under the IDEA Act when their chief claim is for damages under other federal laws, such as the ADA or the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, end quote. Next time, we continue our special report on the history of special education in the United States by resuming the arc of Washington's efforts towards initial special education law and the first ever such law to be passed in the United States, courtesy of the organization's efforts. Also coming up in the next few weeks, we'll be continuing our coverage of the Lift v. Westchester Disabled on the Move case, which began last year. Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn.